do this. Let's talk about talk. Hey there, I'm Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. Please call me Andrea. Welcome to Talk About Talk, the communication-focused podcast that provides us with the knowledge, strategies, and confidence to enrich our relationships and enhance our career success. This week, we're talking about a highly sensitive topic, but an important one. In fact, I would say that this is one of the most important topics we've covered. Today, we're talking about how to support our grieving friends. What to say to our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors when they're in mourning, when they've lost someone who's important to them, when they are so sad and we're afraid we may say the wrong thing. After listening to this podcast, you'll have a much better idea about what to say and what to do. I recently spent an hour in the office of a registered psychotherapist named Andrea Warnick. Andrea was recommended to me by my dear friend Suzanne, whose husband Harold died a few years ago. Notice that I just used the D word, died. More on that in a minute. Suzanne recommended Andrea Warnick to me as a guest expert for the Talk About Talk listeners to learn how to support their grieving friends. What to say, what to do, and what not to say and do. Well, let me tell you this. Andrea absolutely blew me away. She definitely exceeded my expectations. So thank you, Suzanne, and thank you, Andrea. Okay, I promise you will feel better equipped to support your grieving friends after listening to this. Now, I'm going to introduce Andrea Warnick. After the interview, I will summarize her main points for us. You do not need to take notes. The summary will be available for you in the show notes. If you go to talkabouttalk.com and click on podcast, you'll see the show notes there. Let me introduce Andrea Warnick. Andrea is a registered psychotherapist whose passion lies in helping families and communities support people of all ages who are grieving the illness or death of someone close to them. With a degree in nursing, a master's degree in thanatology, that is the study of dying and death, and years of nursing and counseling in Canada and abroad, Andrea brings to her work a rare mix of medical and psychosocial expertise. Over the years, Andrea has served as a counselor, director, teacher, clinical team member, and or project lead at several organizations, including the Dr. J Children's Grief Program, Camp Aaron, a free overnight bereavement camp, the Sick Kids Centre for Community Mental Health, Ontario's Children and Youth Grief Network, the Canadian Virtual Hospice, or CVH, and kidsgrief.ca. In addition to her education and consulting work, Andrea has grief counselling practices in Toronto and Guelph, Ontario. I met Andrea in her Toronto office. Thank you very much for taking the time. So I thought we would start, uh, I would start by asking you about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five-stage model, because Mm -hmm. when I think about a friend or a family member who's going through grief, my mind goes there. Absolutely. Kubler-Ross is a great place to start. So, yeah, when Kubler-Ross did develop her model, and there's even controversy around that and whose model it actually was originally, Uh. but 
you know, it was designed for people who were dying. And to be honest, I think Kubler-Ross did some wonderful things for the field of death and dying. I mean, it was at a time where really people who were dying were located very far from the nursing station, studies showed and things like that. Like, the isolation was profound. We'd moved very far from death being in the home to being highly medicalized event, very isolating. And she really taught people, like, if you want to learn from people who are dying, you need to talk to people who are dying. And I think there was a lot of great things that came out of that. Okay. The problem with the five-stage model is it's very simplistic. Even for the person who's dying, it's very linear. I think that um, people like it because it tidies grief up. And our brains like that. We want it to be a neat process where we start here and we end at acceptance. Mm. My concern with the five-stage model is it leaves a lot of people feeling as though they're failing at grief because it's not neat and tidy. Mm. And one day where maybe they're feeling a little bit of acceptance or, you know, some joy in their life. And the next day is a complete mess and they're feeling angry. And I find that a lot of people end up being very judgmental about their grief process. So they're judging themselves. And then on top of that, other people are judging them. And they know other people are judging them. Yeah. And a lot of people feel like they haven't done it right, and they didn't land at acceptance. I think it was far too simplistic, and people loved the idea, Mm -hmm. but the reality is, like, a lot of people in the thanatology community, the death community, are really working hard to make sure it's erased from textbooks, that it's not showing up anymore, because it is setting up a lot of people to feel like they're failures in their grief process. Wow. And so, you know, when I'm teaching, I'll often reference it, but I'll show people, like, a big scribble. Of A, there's a whole lot more stages and a whole lot more feelings and everything else. I don't even know that we should call them stages. Right. And it's a mess. Right. So my objective here is to help the listeners have something in their mind. It could be just a few points that will help them feel better equipped to support their friends or family members who are grieving someone. One of the other things that I I found really interesting is avoiding the word death when we're talking about death. So mm-hmm. so we use metaphors, right? And then we use the word um, past or lost mm-hmm. instead of died. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, language is so powerful, right? And we've shown that the more uncomfortable we are with a topic as a society, the more euphemisms we're going to have. My understanding is that in the English language, there's over 240 euphemisms for death and dying. Wow. Right? So there's a lot. That's how uncomfortable we are. And I, I always use the word death, dying, died. There's a couple reasons for that. I mean, one... I work with a lot of families who have young children who have had someone die in their life as well. Totally confusing for kids when they hear people saying, like, oh, dad passed away. It's completely abstract for them. Or we lost grandpa. The number of kids I've had jump up and start looking for their lost person who's actually died. Wow. Kids lose things all the time and find them again. But even adult to adult... I find that by using the actual words of death and dying, it shows that I'm comfortable with the topic, right? And it calls it what it is. I'm not skirting around it. You know, some people aren't comfortable with the topic, but still calling it death and dying can show the other person that you're really willing to show up Mm. and talk about what's happened. So when I write condolence letters now, like, I never say, like, passed away, passed on. I'll be like, I was really sad to hear your dad died. I think the assumption there is that the receiver of the information, the griever, 
mm-hmm. wants to hear that. Is that a fair assumption? That I don't want to suggest that everybody does. So I work with some families who have said, like, oh, well, we prefer the language of passed away. And if a family that I'm supporting says that, I will use that. Okay. Far more people have said, thank you for calling it what it actually is. Mm. And my background was also oncology nursing and palliative care nursing. And nowhere do I still find it more challenging to use the language than when I'm talking to someone who is dying themselves. Mm. But even in those situations, I've had numerous people say, like, you're the only healthcare provider I've worked with who has used the D word. Everybody else, even though I'm on the palliative care ward, nobody's calling it death and dying. The medical system and physicians and nurses are no exception to the sort of death phobia that we experience in this culture, where people are uncomfortable with it. But I think also, to be fair to physicians giving the news, sometimes people are like, you're being way too blunt with me. It's not going to be what works for one person, works for everyone. But overall, I mean, we've got research on this. We need to call it death and dying. I work with a lot of people who aren't even clear about the fact that somebody's dying in the family because none of the physicians have used that language. Wow. You know, I know even my own father was dying and um, he had a progressive disease that definitely was going to result in death. But when we went to do advanced care planning with him, he was very much under the impression that he wouldn't die from it. He would just stay in a wheelchair for the rest of his life because his physician, who was the specialist, never used the word death, never said, you will die from this eventually. Wow. I, the person who's done so much work in this, too, is Atul Gawande. Oh, yeah. Right? So being mortal. And, yeah. I mean, he and yeah. his parents, they could not even figure out his dad's prognosis, despite 150 years collectively of medical experience. Yeah. So I, I think language is important, but it's not just about healthcare. It's friend to friend, being able to call it what it is. And sometimes using the word death or died, it feels a little bit jarring, and I think people are trying to soften it. Right. But from a therapeutic level, calling it what it is in the big picture is actually helpful. Right. It minimizes confusion as well. And, you know, if the person's having a hard time because they're grieving, then hopefully we're able to just show up for them in that space and let it be hard. So that is a beautiful segue to my next question, which is perhaps the most important question that I have for you. When we're trying to support a grieving friend, we're really afraid that what we're going to say is going to backfire. So I'm hearing one piece of advice is to use the word death or dying Mm -hmm. and then maybe to sense whether the person wants to talk. One of the most important approaches Mm -hmm. is to not fall into the fix-it trap. Okay. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to minimize the person's grief. Sometimes I find that the fear for people is that I might say the wrong thing So instead, I'd rather not say anything at all. I can tell you that's happened to me personally, and I have the very best of intentions. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think I'm trying to save myself. I really am trying to save them. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, when someone's died, you can't fix it, right? You can't fix it. And that's where most people will welcome somebody even coming up and saying, I don't know what to say, Mm -hmm. or I wish I knew what to say. Mm -hmm. Right? Or just, uh, I'm here for you. Mm-hmm. This is really hard. There are no words. What people tend not to appreciate, and I can speak from personal experience myself as well, is when people try to say, well, you know, at least he's not suffering anymore, or find That's any sort of silver lining. Absolutely. Anything with at least, I tell people, just stop right there. Don't let it leave your mouth. 
right? I have to say, I think I've heard to play the devil's advocate here, maybe the wrong term in this context, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, the, at least he or she isn't suffering. I've heard that from the mourner or the griever. Absolutely. So this is where I'm glad you said that because the nuance here is if the person in the epicenter of their grief, the person closest to the person who died is saying that or feeling that, and I most certainly did feel that with my dad, absolutely okay. But we need to differentiate that we don't say it to anybody else to try to make them feel better. Okay. So very much that is a lot of people's experience. But what doesn't help is when other people are trying to make them feel better by saying it. Right. right? It might be what they're feeling. It might not be. But for sure, for when an individual is grieving and they're the person, they're welcome to tell other people that this is some of, you know, the grace that they've found in it or this is some of the comforting thoughts they found in it, that their person's not suffering uh, and things like that. So don't try to prescribe anything or fill in or even offer suggestions for how they could or should reconcile. Absolutely. Just let's be there, show up. I mean, I think showing up is one of the most important things we can do, Mm -hmm. too. Even if it's awkward, even if we don't know what to say, show up. But don't tell them how to feel, and don't try to find the silver lining. The number Mm -hmm. of brief parents I've worked with who have had people say to them, well, at least you have other children. Not helpful. It doesn't make the grief any less for the child who died. Mm -hmm. That parent probably does have days where they're deeply grateful for the fact that they have other children, which again, it's that nuance, but nobody else should be telling them that to try to make them feel more okay with this horrible thing that has happened in their life. So I have a line that I've used with the best of intentions in many condolence cards. Mm -hmm. I want, I want you to tell me what you think of this. I'll put something personal in there Mm -hmm. and then I'll say... I hope that someday soon, when you think of this person, instead of being so sad and crying, that the thought of the person makes you smile. Mm -hmm. So what do you think of that? You know, I I think it's lovely. I think that, um, I I mean, that kind of captures the complexity of grief right there. Mm -hmm. And I will often talk to people about that. I will talk about the fact that, you know, that first time you see that picture that you haven't seen since your mom died, it can feel like a kick in the gut. Yeah. And the, you know, the way grief works, that exact same picture that can be such a source of pain initially, once you've seen it a few times, it very much can be that it's a source of comfort. Mm. So I think that absolutely, like, that really is representative of how grief often does work. I would just encourage you to, you know, also make space for the hard feelings in between. Often when people are in the trenches, it's hard for them to believe that that could even be true. Right. Right? And that's where just saying, like, I am here for you. If you ever want to talk, I actually find one of the most helpful things is to ask people or give them the opportunity to talk about the person who died. Uh, right? Like, I didn't get to know your dad, but I would have loved to know your dad. Or uh, I'd love to hear stories about your dad. Mm. And there's this beautiful saying by a bereaved parent, and it says, you know, mention my child's name and I may cry, but don't mention my child's name and you'll break my heart. Wow. It's so true. Of Often people aren't bringing up the person who died because we're worried we're going to make the person sad. We're exactly. not going to make Exactly. That's exactly it. You don't want to make it... I don't want to make it worse. Yeah. 
Exactly. And sometimes by saying nothing, you're telling me that I actually am making it worse. Yes. Right. And that's where, so you may mention the name of the person who died, say, you know, I've been thinking about them recently. Their person may start crying. You've not made them more sad than they already were. Okay. You know, you're giving them a chance for the emotions to come to the surface. Hopefully you can just be there and bear witness and be Uh, with them, even if you're not saying uh anything. Right? But the thing that for most people is the most frightening is the idea that their person will be forgotten. Mm. You know, and as somebody who's also worked sort of at the bedside with people who are dying, there's a lot of people who are dying who are also worried about being forgotten. Right. And that's where I find it's so important that we keep talking to people about their person who died. Or in families, if a grandfather died before the kid, grandkids were ever born, it's now everybody else's responsibility to make sure those grandkids know the grandfather. Right. And that they're a part of their life. And there's other cultures that do this much better than we do. So let's, let's talk about that for a minute because mm-hmm. I find it fascinating that in our culture, and I know we are a diverse culture, mm-hmm. especially here in Toronto, yeah. but generally speaking, mourning is a solemn and private thing mm-hmm. versus other cultures where the dead are so ce- literally celebrated. Mm-hmm. Right. Can you talk about that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think if you go to Mexico around the day of the dead and the day before is the day where all the children who have died in a community are celebrated and grieved, right? The act of cooking food that the person used to love, mm. bringing it to, whether it's to the cemetery. I mean, anyone who's been through a Mexican cemetery can see that there's so much more inhabited than our cemeteries. with Candles, pictures, flowers everywhere, very uh. colorful. Um, but most of the towns have, you know, altars in the middle of towns. Most homes have altars in their homes as well. So there's very much public spaces for grieving. And I'd say as diverse as we are, for most of us in Canada as well, in the United States, if we go back a couple generations, wherever we our families came from, we probably had a lot more rituals and ways to connect with our dead than we do now. So why do you think that is? Are we is it because it's this sad taboo thing and or? I think that's a part of it, but I think also you know, not as many people are connected to religious institutions in the same way. A right. lot of times those rituals would come from religious institutions. Hmm. Um, so I think that that's part of it as well. Hmm. And that's where I find a lot of my work in supporting people who are grieving is helping them develop rituals. What does it look like to connect with my dad? Not oh. just six months after he died, 16 years after he died. What do we do on his birthday, right? right. When do we talk about him? It, it's not just a sentiment thing that we keep talking about our dad. It's a responsibility you know your responsibility to care for your ancestors you know whether it's religious or not a lot of people who have a sense of an ongoing spirit or consciousness or whatever it is um, and then that actually brings it to you know there's another aspect of it which it is still caring for the Hmm. person and figuring out what does that look like Hmm. without a whole lot of guideposts on how to do that do you have an opinion about whether we should be more public about this. One of the things that we're contending with right now is there's been really this effort to sort of bypass the sad in the grief and to go straight into celebrating people. Mm. But what I've really learned is that, you know, if we don't do the grief, if we don't do the mourning, allowing ourselves to be heartbroken, then, you know, the celebration only holds us for so long. And I I work with a lot of people who look back and wish Mm. six months or years down the line, they're like, I wish I had more time to actually mourn with my community. 
I've heard of people who are very, very sick saying that they do not want a funeral, right? And they want, if anything, a party. Yeah. So it's even coming from that side. Absolutely. And and that's where I work with a lot of people um, after their person who said that has died and try to help them understand that likely the person who died wanted what is ever going to be best for their loved ones. Right. And their intention was very well meaning in that they just didn't want them to be sad. Right. But it may be misguided. Yeah. Right? And, and that's where I find, you know, if we kind of unpack some of that, not to say don't have the party, but even in having the party, I say, make some room at the party for some of the grief, uh, some of the heartbreak uh, to come to the surface together. Put on that song that you know is going to bring the emotion out. Put on the slideshow or do the candle lighting and ask for a couple moments of silence. Yeah. Right. But make some room for the grief. Because in the big picture, I really think we're doing ourselves a disservice by pushing the grief and the hard feelings and the sorrow to the fringes. Right. That sounds like such fabulous advice because otherwise where my mind goes is all these people then go home and they feel guilty because they're still feeling sad and then it becomes this private thing that's digging their insides out, right? It's just... It makes for a healthier process when we can do it in community. And it doesn't mean it all has to be done in community. I think throughout the ages, grief has always been hard, right? We're designed as human beings to be able to do heartbreak and experience profound amounts of heartbreak and survive it. Hmm. But That's very <clears throat> empowering, actually. Mm-hmm. I think we need to remind ourselves of that sometimes. But I find now we're contending here with an extra layer of complexity in the sense that we are now incredibly isolated as we do the heartbreak. Even within families, often everyone's sort of retreating to their own rooms to do it. You know, everybody's trying to protect each other from their sorrow, which is often just making it harder, as opposed to really learning how to do it together. Mm -hmm. Let it be hard, even if it is sitting on the couch with the person who is weeping, or for someone else they may be raging, and just not doing anything, not distracting, but very much doing something in being present and holding that space for them. Right. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you have any comments on the similarities, differences, su- surprises, things that people don't take into consideration in particular regarding how children grieve. In terms of children, yeah. their grief often looks very different than adults. They grieve as they puddle jump when they're in it. It's massive and it feels huge. Um, and then they jump out. And that could be a child who's literally just found out that a parent died from a sudden heart attack or something like that. They're devastated for 17 minutes, and then they're off playing hockey after that, which most adults have trouble wrapping their heads around. Right? Mm. And they, but, but they're going to do that. They're going to go back and forth okay. in a way that few adults can. They will balance like deep joy and deep sorrow. But that's going to be the long haul. You know, the kid who's six when his dad dies is going to think of it very different when he's 12, when he's 16, when he's 22. He'll keep revisiting that grief at different developmental levels. And Uh, I find that catches a lot of adults off guard. They're like, it's been eight years. Why is all this grief coming to the surface? Did I not support him properly? Are we not grieving properly? And that's why I spend a lot of time reassuring parents that this is very much how it looks. uh, But not even just for kids, you know. I mean, if you're... 14 and your mom dies, you know, as an adult, when you have, if you have children, 
a lot of people will revisit a lot of their grief for their mom or their dad or the person that they wish that were there, right? I think this really keeps going on to a degree throughout mm. the lifespan, that we keep mm. revisiting our grief at different times. So it doesn't go away. Back to the uh, original there, There's no we fixed end point, right? When we're processing it and support it in a healthy way, does it become less psychologically dominant? Yes, a lot of people grow around their grief. It's still a big part of them. It doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. I'll often say to families, you know, my job's not to fix your broken heart. My job's to teach you how to live with a broken heart. Uh, and that I know we can do. But it, it does get where it's not as all-consuming if we're processing it and everything else, you know, and being yeah. well-supported. Mm -hmm. So it, it does look different in kids. I find a lot of people... Um, are so surprised by the fact that kids can have experienced tremendous amounts of grief but still be having fun and playing. It doesn't mean that they're not grieving, but mm. it means that they're still able to have fun and not feel guilty mm. about it and have a good time, and then they'll jump back into the grief at so some point. So maybe in a way, children are fortunate if you're going to lose someone at some point that they don't have that sort of self-awareness is it even self-awareness? Yeah, but I feel like that only holds true for quite young children because okay. it, it doesn't take long before they do start doing that and they or they're hesitant to go to school because they're worried someone will ask about their mom and they'll cry at school mm. and they don't want to show their emotions in front of their peers. And so I feel like that's a bit of a buffer um, for a little mm. while mm. for quite young children. But I find the thing that can be hard with young children too is um, sometimes part of their sorrow is that, you know, they didn't get as long with the person, right? And, and that even kids who are infants or toddlers, when a parent dies or someone dies in a the family, they'll often, part of their grief process as they get older, is that they don't have the actual memories that maybe an older sibling They really missed out on something. Did. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk about photographs? This is a little bit off to mm -hmm. topic from communication, but you just reminded me I took a course about self and identity. At one point, the professor said that there is some research that photographs actually create memories. Mm. I wonder if someone's two years old and there were photographs for two years of somebody with their grandparent or even a parent, right? And yeah. Then, so. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, and, and that's where I think photographs are so important, but so are stories, mm -hmm. right? And that's where I'll often say when kids are young and don't necessarily have their own memories, it's then the responsibility of the community to make sure that child knows the person who died. Sometimes people will say to me, yeah, we go around our family and we all talk about memories of so-and-so who died. And I'll say it's a subtle difference, but you might just want to ask for everyone to tell a story about grandpa who died because then even the kids who don't necessarily have memories that they can recall themselves they've probably heard a story and they can contribute in a different way that's amazing i love that huh i'm gonna ask some people in my family for stories of yeah people. we were talking about um ways that people respond and has anyone come up with a categorization of grieving styles like is there a mm -hmm. typology some of the work in this area by Martin Ndoka looks at sort of intuitive versus instrumental grievers is mm. what they call them. And intuitive would be sort of more emotive. I can, you know, talk about my feelings. I can express my feelings with somebody else. And this is a continuum. Whereas an instrumental griever 
would be more, you know, I process cerebrally, I do stuff, I am, you know, maybe I'm starting my foundation or things like that, right? But most people are falling somewhere in the continuum. And that's where I do find grief counseling or grief therapy tends to privilege more intuitive grievers. Um, support groups will privilege more intuitive grievers. I often will say, you know, when you're designing programs, make sure you're doing some psychoeducation too, where it's like people can come in, they could stare at the board in the front, not necessarily have to make eye contact with each other, because you're going to bring in more of your instrumental grievers right. that way. So if, you, if you're a person who relies on frameworks, yes, you're going to be actually comforted by saying, okay, here's my roadmap. Yeah, well, exactly. Like This is an education session. Right. And nobody's expected to like, I'm going to teach you some stuff, um, which you can take or leave. But no one's expected to make eye contact with each other and share their feelings. Uh, Sometimes that just sort of emerges anyway. uh, But uh, it's safer for, you know, some of those people who aren't going to self-identify and say, "Okay, I'm going to go to this bereavement group or I'm going to go talk to a therapist. Mm. So I think it's important to keep in mind that people do process their grief very differently and within any given family you can have you know a variety of grieving styles mm-hmm. where I often will see couples after a child has died or somebody's died and they'll be like well it doesn't seem like my husband's grieving at right. all I'm not seeing any emotions I can't get off the couch I'm just you know a mess all the time and it's often not that the other person isn't grieving their grief just looks so different uh-huh. and it's expressed in very different ways wow so that's a really great reason to go see a grief counselor, right? Yes. To, well, to, <laughs> it's one of many help, reasons. Yes, yeah, totally. Or just to like research grief a bit and look and recognize, right, yeah. that there's actually like different ways of doing this. And often, again, within families, we're falling into the fix-it trap. We're trying to protect each other, you know, from the intensity of our sorrow, which is unfortunately, and they have done some research on this too, often making it harder. Right. It backfires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So one of the things that I did in preparation um, for this, I, I think I emailed you about it. I ended up in tears, but I, I found a website uh, that was focused on grief counseling, and they yeah. asked people to leave a note saying what was the best thing and or the worst thing that anyone said to them specifically when they were grieving. Yeah. And I was reading as I was reading through it, um, you know, it was incredibly sad. Um and raw. Mm-hmm. And it was also diverse. That's why I was wondering about the typology. It seems like some people want A and reject B, and some people want B and reject A. Yes. And it makes it very complicated, it right? Complicated. It, there's not a clear cut sort of this is what you do and this is what you don't do. I always encourage people to be gentle with themselves too because even when I'm teaching and I put up lists of try to avoid the fix-it trap, try to not say at least, invariably there's always people who are like, oh, I say that all the time. It doesn't mean you've been traumatizing people or anything else. This is challenging because one person may want their grief acknowledged and one person may not. But that's where I generally default to show up talk about the person, right? Ask for stories about the person. If the person says, I I can't talk about them, I don't want to talk about them, don't push them. Take their lead on that. Mm -hmm. But I tend to find far more people do want their grief acknowledged and do want the person to be Mm -hmm. talked about. But for sure, if you're using some of these strategies and somebody says, I don't like it when people say that. Just like, I don't like it when people use the D word. I'd rather you say passed away. Take their lead on that, right? right? right. Because there's never going to be, like, one thing fits all. 
Yeah, otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. We wouldn't be having this conversation. (laughs) But there are some general trends of showing up, right, not trying to fix it or take away the grief, just saying, like, I'm here for you. Okay. You know, and I might not know what to say. I may not know what to do, but I am here for you. If you want to talk, I can be here. If you need me to, you know, plow the field, I can do that. Yeah. If you can do that. Can I bring a dinner to you? Can I bring a dinner? Those types of things. Clean the toilets? Can I? (laughs) Right. Which is like, and, and being concrete like that, because a lot of times we'll say, well, if I can do anything for you, just tell me. But for most people who are grieving, that's overwhelming. And to right. try to think they're not going right. to, most people are going to say, oh yeah, please come and do my laundry. Right. You know, but still just don't show up and just do the laundry. Ask the person. I was thinking, maybe I could pay for your hospital parking. You know what? Or maybe I could show up and like do your laundry for mm. the next couple of days mm. or whatever. Would that be helpful? And then if they say no, don't do it. And if they say yes, as you were talking, um, something struck me. If if the person doesn't want to talk about the person who died, they might want to talk about themselves. They could be two discrete things. Yes. Uh, well, no, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think that the other thing is they may want to talk about themselves or their experience of all this, but what someone may want today can be very different than what they might want a few weeks from now. Oh, that's important to keep in mind. A few months from now. I find quite often in the early days after a death, even an anticipated death, sometimes if people don't want to talk about things, it's because they're worried about doing vulnerability and, Mm. you know, their emotions Mm. coming to the surface. Mm. And so I spend a lot of time trying to reframe for people that being sad, allowing your emotions to come to the surface, is that's not a weakness. Mm. That's a strength. We need to do that together more often. Right. But a lot of times the barrier for people is like, I don't want to be sad right now or I don't want to cry right now. But six months down the road, they may be very much able to talk about their partner without their emotions coming to the surface or they might be more comfortable Hmm. with them when they come to the surface. And then sometimes what happens is nobody's asking or nobody's inviting them or giving them that opportunity. Hmm. And that's why I just like to say to people, you know, if at any point you ever, whether this is months or years down the road, want to share stories about your person or want to talk about this experience, like please reach out to me. I will always welcome the opportunity to do that with you. Wow. Wow. So one thing that I'm hearing from you is just being open, right? So open to whatever you can do for the person and open to them changing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And even open to them shutting you down. Even open to them shutting you down. Absolutely. Okay. Right? And that's where, like, sometimes, you know, one of the feelings that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did identify, which very much is a part of a lot of people's grief process, is anger. Right? And sometimes, like, the messenger gets shot. Sometimes, like, it's going to be a harsh shutdown. Still better to default on showing up. Yep. And just stay open. Mm -hmm. Right? Absolutely. Um, One more quick question. I'm curious if you have a comment or an insight for us about the difference and maybe even the relative importance of sympathy versus empathy in the context of helping and supporting someone who's grieving. Yes. So, I mean on a very basic level, I mean, a lot of people define sympathy as sort of feeling sorry for somebody. And I generally find nobody likes to have people feeling sorry for them. But yet that's the first thing we say. I'm sorry 
for your loss. Exactly. So perhaps something we should wipe out. Well, and I often do talk loss? about not using sorry as well. I, okay. I tend to say for a number of reasons, and a lot of times kids will take it as an apology, um, but even <sighs> teenagers sometimes feel like, I don't know how, how to respond to this. I tend to say, like, you know, it's really sad to hear your person died. Okay. So the, I hadn't made that connection before. So that's empathy, That's a very though. good point. That's empathy. Empathy I'm is sad. more, yeah, putting I, yourself in another's shoes. Now, I think an interesting thing now is a lot more people are looking at compassion mm. and showing that um, compassion and empathy are actually coming from different parts of the brain. And it's actually a much healthier way if we can come from a, a compassion standpoint. And uh-huh. I can't do justice to the conversation around it. But they, they've been studying in like a lot of Buddhist monks and everything and have shown that people who are sort of coming from a place of compassion aren't getting what we so call so-called compassion fatigue or empathy fatigue oh, in the same way. So it's actually empathy, I would say, is a better place to operate from than sympathy. Okay. But if you can do compassion okay. and learn how to operate from that, that probably serves I think everybody that the makes best. sense. It's almost like, a, well, it is a hierarchy, right? Sympathy is better than nothing. Yeah. Empathy is better than sympathy. Compassion. Yeah, compassion. Thank you for that. I'm glad I asked. Yeah. So this is a brutal transition. That's okay. <laughs> but now, but now, I work with grieving children, so we're usually transitioning okay. very fast. Yeah, jumping back into the puddle or back out of the puddle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Question number one. What are your pet peeves? Pet peeves. I hate it when people stand on both sides of the escalator and you can't actually like go down that side of the escalator and also snow pant material that rubs together. It's ridiculous. I passed it on genetically to my child. She can't handle people's snow pants rubbing together either. The sound of it? Oh yeah. Can't. All my friends had to walk with their legs apart when I was a kid. Oh my god. Yeah. And as a parent now I have to find special snow pants all the time that don't make that sound that they rub like it. Oh, I can't deal with it. Oh my gosh, that is hilarious. So the escalator thing, and, uh, I'm with you. In fact, I will uh, be a bit of a vigilante, if that's the right word in this context, but and say, excuse me, we're passing on the left here, right? Yeah, I should do that more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just push them out of the way. Exactly. Move. That's funny. <laughs> the snow pad thing, that's a new one for me. What type of learner are you? Generally experiential. My brain is a bit like a playground, so I think like if I'm not doing it, my brain is jumping all over the place, and then I'm missing half of what people are talking about anyways. Introvert or extrovert? A lot of people think I'm an extrovert, but I actually refer to myself as a socially skilled introvert. I, you know, I'm probably pretty close to the medium part, but I actually need, like, need to have time on my own to sort of get my energy back up. And I do love being around people. I'm not faking it or anything like that, but it, it does take some of my energy, and I hmm. recharge by going and growing some vegetables and Mm. raising monarch butterflies and hanging out with myself. You're very enthusiastic and animated, which is why people may expect you to be an extrovert, Mm -hmm. but you're saying, no, no, I really... Well, and it's complex in that I I do love being... It's not that I need large amounts of time away from people. Um, Communication preference for personal... Maybe connecting with your daughter or, Mm -hmm. or a friend for social plans. Right. Generally, I would text text. I would just text. I like just want it fast. I don't have to have a conversation because again, I'm trying to find some me time. Fast, send a text. I feel overwhelmed with all the like messengers and messages are all over the place and I can't keep track of everything. I just, I will text and send a message. Got it. 
And last question, is there a podcast, a blog, or an email newsletter that you recommend the most to people? I really like the podcast, Terrible. Thanks for asking. Okay. I'll put a link for that up in the show notes. Esther Perel's Where Do We Begin? Phenomenal. It's it's all relationship stuff, but grief is woven right into there. Okay. Um, And then I love Megan Devine's newsletter. I mean, she just wrote, It's Okay That You're Not Okay. Uh Um, All about grief. And she's a psychotherapist, but her partner also died in a sudden drowning. And she, I think, is really pushing the conversation about this. Oh, so you can um, you can also refer th- these to your clients, right? Oh, and, yeah, I and, do. Like, yeah. we talk about Esther Perel. And then Brene Brown's work on vulnerability yep. is phenomenal as yep. well. So Brene yep. Brown's The Power of Vulnerability TED Talk, I yep. give to almost everybody I work with. So the vulnerability construct is also related to the compassion thing you were talking about, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Huh. Yeah, and, and they're closely connected. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to leave the listeners with or any main points regarding supporting their grieving friends? It's important to consider how do we support ourselves. Sometimes I think we get really fixated on how do we support the other, Mm. but perhaps the most challenging thing is often like how do we show up for ourselves? How do we do our grief? Right? Are we pushing our grief to the fringes too? Because it feels hard and it feels bad. And I find one of the biggest parts of my job is convincing people to grieve. It's so easy to be busy all the time now. Mm. It's so easy to distract. So I'm often coaching for parents not to distract their children from their grief and giving them space and time for it. But for an adult on their own or even the teenagers I work with, a lot of times what I'm trying to do is help build up their capacity and their confidence to know that they can be with and experience these really big, hard feelings. And the vast majority of us are not going to get stuck in a black hole of these feelings. Right. We'll experience them and it will be really hard. They will shift. Right? And one of the things that I've really learned in this work is that we don't let ourselves do the hard feelings, the sorrow, the yearning, the heartbreak. Ultimately, what we do unintentionally is blunt out the other end of the emotional spectrum, too. Uh, we just start numbing out. Right. We, we don't feel the joy and the gratitude to the same depths as uh, well. Wow, that's pretty powerful. I mean, that's compelling if if I was in a situation where I was grieving mm-hmm. or if I knew someone who was grieving. I guess it's almost like denial. They're denying themselves the opportunity anyway. Well, and I don't know if it's denial as much as not seeing the utility in it. Right. Right? I, I think that we don't have much of an understanding of grief in our culture, in our society. Hmm. And so I think a lot of times people are like, oh, that just it feels horrible, so why bother? Right? They don't realize that there is actually a good reason to uh, bother because uh, it, it will serve them well. And, and also just a reminder that most of the time, our grief is rooted in the love for the person who died. It's an expression of our love after they've died. Just like it was important to express it and feel it when the person was alive, right. it is important to do that when they've died as well. Very nicely put. Hmm. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for highlighting this. It's such an important topic. I think so. Wow. Did Andrea blow you away too? I have to admit, I was very nervous about this interview, particularly since this is such a solemn topic. But Andrea is disarmingly easy to talk to, isn't she? 
Let me summarize for us then some of her main points. She covered so much. So what I did was I created two lists for us. One is what to think about when we're trying to support our grieving friends. And the other list is what to say. First, what to think about. And to start, grieving is not a linear step-by-step process. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance was actually meant for the dying, not for the grievers. Research shows that the process of grieving is not linear. Rather, it is more like a squiggly line. Second, if you are celebrating someone's life, try to make room for the grief too. It will come out at some point. Number three, not only is the process of grieving nonlinear and squiggly, but everyone is different. So, for example, children experience and demonstrate their grief differently from adults. It's not uncommon for children to jump back and forth from deep sorrow to playing blissfully with their friends. That is completely normal. Another example, some people physically exhibit their grief and others are very private about it. Furthermore, some people may be intuitive in their grieving process, whereas others are more instrumental, preferring to use frameworks. Even given these differences in grieving styles, there are some things that are generally good to think about and to say. We can think about a hierarchy of sympathy to empathy to compassion. Sympathy is better than nothing. Stepping up, empathy is even better. And one step beyond that, compassion is ideal. We should seek to be compassionate with our grieving friends. Another thing to keep in mind, don't try to save the person. As Andrea says, when you're talking to your grieving friends, don't fall into the fix-it trap. Rather, show up and just be there for the person. Just sit and talk. Or maybe even just sit. And last, don't worry about making the person feel sad. They're already sad. The only thing worse than talking about the person who died is forgetting about that person. Talking does not make it worse. That is a nice segue to the second list of takeaways, what we should say. First, do not say, at least they aren't suffering anymore, and do not say, thank goodness you have other children. As Andrea says, not helpful. There is no silver lining, and these things don't make the grief any less. If the griever wants to frame it that way, it's up to them, but don't offer that. Got it? Okay, so what do you say? Well, as Andrea Warnick said, you need to show up. Start with, I'm here for you if you want to talk today or tomorrow or next month or next year. Also, unless they tell you otherwise, do not hesitate to use the D words, dying, death, and died. There are over 240 euphemisms for death in the English language. Using words like lost or past are just wrong and sometimes confusing. What you can say is that you want to hear about the person who died. It could be, I never met your grandmother, tell me about her. Or if you did meet her, you could say, tell me again about the time, or tell me the story. Many people who are grieving find some relief in telling a story about the person. I'm going to leave you now with two of my favorite Andrea Warnick quotes. First, she said, We're designed as human beings to be able to do heartbreak and experience profound amounts of heartbreak and survive it. Secondly, she said, 
My job is not to fix your broken heart. My job is to teach you how to live with a broken heart, and that I know we can do. Isn't Andrea just so inspiring? I hope that you two find these quotes to be empowering. Okay, that's it for now. I learned so much in this episode, and I hope you did too. If you want to check out Andrea Warnick's website or her social media, you can find the links in the show notes on the podcast page of the Talk About Talk website. I'll also leave links to other resources that were mentioned in this episode. Thanks to Andrea Warnick, I am now feeling much better equipped to help a grieving friend, and I hope you feel the same. I want to thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Talk About Talk podcast and subscribe to the weekly email blog. Just go to talkabouttalk.com to sign up. That's it. Thanks again for listening, and talk soon.